afternoon, church. It is so good to be here with all of you. Let's stand and pray before we get into God's word. Lord Jesus, we want to lift up all of our brothers and sisters that are going on missions trips this summer, God. I pray that you would be honored, God, and that your word would go forth, Lord. And we know that no one, God, can stop your word from doing its work in the hearts of people, whether abroad or here in this room right now. And Lord, so we pray for the same thing. God, as for the missionaries, we pray here for this message now. God, as we open up your word, God, as we proclaim it by faith, that your spirit would awaken our hearts to see your glory, to see your beauty, to fall in love in you, with you more and more, maybe for the first time, Jesus. Give us that faith, God. Give us the eyes to see. Lord, we pray this all in your precious name. Amen. You may be seated. There's a story about a boy that uh, went over to his grandma's house for a sleepover. Anyone ever done that before with grandparents? Sleepover, right? I love that, right? He went over to his grandma's house, and he was sleeping over. It was a Saturday night. And the next morning, they were supposed to go to church together, but his grandma got a little bit sick. And she said, you know, Sonny, you're going to go on without me. I'm going to stay home because I'm a little bit sick. But here, I'm going to give you two $5 bills. One you're going to put into the offering plate. The other one you can use to buy yourself some ice cream. So he's very delighted. He grabs the bills, and he makes his way off to church. And he's walking to church, and he pulls out one of the $5 bills, and he starts looking at it, you know, so fresh and crisp. And, you know, it's got that fresh money smell. And as he was looking at it, there was a gust of wind, and a $5 bill flies out from his hand, and he starts chasing it, right? He's running, and it's just... He's about to catch it, and all of a sudden, it just flies straight into the storm drain. And the worst, you know, is going through his head. So he runs up. Surely it's pretty low storm drain. He looks down and it's just really deep. So he tries to lift the storm drain up, but he can't. He's too small. He's too weak. So he starts reaching with his hand, but he realizes that's not going to work. He gets up and he starts looking. And all of a sudden the idea dawns on him. He can use a branch. He can use a twig. So he grabs, you know, uh, the biggest branch he can find from the tree. He breaks it off and he, he goes in and he starts trying to grab it. And alas, he realizes that it's still too deep and it was wet down there. So the water kind of sucked in the, 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 dollar bill, the $5 bills. And in defeat, he drops the branch. He looks up and he says, God, well, there goes your $5. So... Today's message is going to be about money, right? And some of you might be sitting there nudging your spouse right now like, hey, we came to church on the wrong week, right? But money is a very important topic. And as unpopular and undesirable as it is, do you realize that Jesus spoke more about money than about heaven and hell combined? In fact, someone wrote that if you look at all the references related to money in the Gospel of Luke, they say every eighth verse has something to do about money. And the question is, why? Why did Jesus speak so much about something so boring, something so kind of uh, undesirable as money? And I think one of the reasons why is because of how real it is. 
it affects every single one of us, and it affects almost every single part of our lives. Money is God's chosen tool for making the human economy even possible and work, right? Society, it'd be impossible without money. And in fact, the Bible never teaches that money is bad, but the Bible does teach that the love of money is the root of all evil. So today we're going to be going through our last message through the letter to the the first letter to the Corinthians from Apostle Paul. We started in February. This is going to be the very last message, chapter 16. So open your Bibles with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 16, and we'll start with the first two verses. It says, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. If we actually study 1 Corinthians and also 2 Corinthians, we see that Paul gives the Corinthians four ways that they should give. Instruction in four ways. The first one that we see right here is to give in light of glory. Now, to to understand the historical context, why was Paul collecting money from Galatia? Why was he collecting from the Corinthians? He was collecting in order to help the saints in Jerusalem. We read in the book of Acts in chapter 11 that there was actually a famine across the land and that they were hit, right? They had a recession, a depression, essentially. They were very, the saints in Jerusalem were poor. Others say they were persecuted. We read in Acts that the saints in Jerusalem were actually selling their properties, right? They were selling, they were bringing all the money to the feet of the apostles and actually all those funds, right? It was essentially a mega church plant. It was the first church plant. God used all their the generosity of the saints of Jerusalem in order to launch the first church, right? They needed, like, you know how they say the, you know, you need the most fuel for a rocket in the very beginning of the rocket. That's the hardest part. And so God moved in the saints of Jerusalem. They donated very generously, but then this famine hits. They're very poor. They're facing persecutions. They needed that help. It was a very real need. And so Paul was going you know, on his missionary trip from church to church, collecting the abundance that the Corinthians had, that the other nations had, and some didn't even have abundance. We read the Macedonians were actually poor, and they still gave. He was collecting in order to help the saints in Jerusalem. So, but what's interesting is this verse, right? If you're studying 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 15, what did Brother Vadim preach about last week? You guys remember? Resurrection, right? God's victory. And then he, he starts talking about giving. And it just feels like such an abrupt turn, like uh, very unexpected, right? Here we have Paul talking about all these glorious things. Chapter 15, the, the chapter right before, verse 43 says, It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. He's saying God, what God will give us, 
through the resurrection will be amazing and awesome. That's chapter 15. He's saying the life, this life, this body, this condition that we're in, it's described as dishonor. It's described as weakness. But what God will give us is glorious and powerful. You know, we read in the Bible when Jesus in his resurrected state or in his glorious state or when angels, when they would appear to people, people would would fall in fear because of the glory that would come from angels. People would be afraid for their life because of the awesome beauty that those have and we will also possess. People trembled in the sight of them. In fact, Daniel chapter 12, verse 3, speaking of the resurrection, speaking of the glory that we will have, it says, and those who are wise, that's those who believe in God, shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Church, just think about this for a second. You ever look at the the Hubble or James Webb telescope photos? Anybody here ever look at those high-resolution photos of the nebulas or the stars or the galaxies, and you look at it, and there's a certain glory that comes with them? A certain awe that comes over us as we look at these brilliant diamonds in the sky or when you see it live. And what God is promising is that for those who love him, they will shine like the stars forever. That we will possess such glory. You see, the resurrection that we read about in chapter 15 is humanity's greatest hope. We've already talked about this on Easter, right? Death takes away all that we have here in this life. All hope, all joy, all purpose, meaning everything is canceled because of the reality of death. And the resurrection, it not only undoes the effects of death, but it also promises us eternal life. We will never die again, right? And, And eternal life, let's be honest, it is the deepest desire of every human being, is it not? I know people deny and say, oh, I'm totally fine with that. But in their heart of hearts, all of us, we want to live forever and we want to be happy. And the resurrection guarantees that to us. And Paul goes on to talk about the second coming of Christ and his victory over sin and death. And then he takes this sharp turn in chapter 16 and starts talking about money. It's like, why do you got to ruin the mood, Paul? Like, why do, you, why do you need to bring up the money topic now? I'm, I'm enjoying the glory of God. I'm enjoying all the things that God is going to do for us. Why do you need to bring up money, right? It's like somebody starting to talk about politics during a really fancy dinner. You know, it's just, it's like, just stop, stop, just stop. Don't bring it up. But if we look at other passages in Scripture, we will see that the topic of money very often is linked, strongly linked to these other ideas of glory and eternity, death, eternal life, heaven. Let's look at a couple. Matthew, 16, Matthew chapter 6, verse 19. This is Jesus, the Sermon on the Mount. And he says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. 
Hebrews 10, 34. For you, your, for you had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. That means other people are taking your property, your stuff. Since you knew you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one or a remaining one, that will, one that will last forever. What the author of Hebrews means by better possession and an abiding one is he's talking about heaven and the glory that God is preparing for us. And it is because the Hebrews, they trusted that God will give them so much, something so much better because they trusted God, they were able to support those who are in prison. Now, back in the day, they didn't have prisons like we do where you get all your you know, three meals a day. They didn't have that. You got put in prison, you're a criminal, and you get just scraps. And if you die, the government doesn't care. You're a criminal, right? You have no rights. And unless your family or your close friends support you, you would most likely die in that prison. And actually, if we look at history, Christians became known for their generosity of going to these prisoners who did nothing good for them, who would never be able to repay them, and they were generous and they fed them and they took care of them. In fact, we see, I believe it was in the 400s, a law came out, a Roman law, that, that prevented, Christians were so generous to prisoners that, that a law came out that prevented, limited how much Christians were able to give to those who are in prison. Like, what a testimony. Like, we need to have a law to limit how much you can give, Right? But that's what Christians did. They were generous to those who could never pay them back. And when people took their stuff, like imagine someone coming into your house and just, you know, taking your TV. Oh, that's a nice couch, right? And just taking it. And instead of shooting them like we would today, right? Because that's my stuff. Don't touch my stuff. I know my Second Amendment rights. Instead of shooting them, it says that they joyfully accepted the plundering of their property. Why? Because they knew they've got a better couch. They've got a better TV in heaven. Another passage we read in, in Luke. This is a parable that Jesus gives in Luke chapter 12. And it's about a rich man who had a huge harvest, right? And, and, a lot, and there was a, he had a lot of uh, grain you know, show up, and, and he didn't expect it himself. And so he says, well, what am I going to do with all this wealth? He says, I know what I'll do. I'll build bigger barns. So that for many years I could relax, eat, drink, be merry, right? He's got this plan. He's set for life. Look at what God tells him. Luke 12, 20 says, but God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? You see, our giving or the lack thereof, exposes the spiritual state of our heart. I'm going to say it again. Our giving, or the lack thereof, exposes the spiritual state of our heart. And that's why Matthew 6.21 says, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So it's not a coincidence that Paul, after talking about the resurrection and glory and God's victory, transitions to talking about the collection, to talk about money. In fact, biblically, if you follow the logic of the Bible, it's a very logical transition. He's saying give 
in light of all this glory that God is preparing for us. You see, we as Christians, we believe, don't we? If we truly believe that God will bring us into glory, that we will live with him forever, that there will be a perfect world with no more tears, no more pain, no more lack. And also the flip side is true as well, isn't it? That we can't keep everything we have here, right? This world will not last. The things that we have here, we can't take it with us. When was the last time you seen a funeral car with a U-Haul, right? Never. We cannot take anything with us. We believe that. And if our focus is on God, and if we believe the things that he promises us, then the way we use our money will be a reflection of that. Again, if our focus is on God and his promises and what he's preparing for us, the way we use our money here on earth will be a reflection of that. But if I believe that this world, it's all I got, right? It's all I have then it makes no sense to be generous. The only reason it makes sense to be generous is so that other people don't think bad of me, right? It's, or, or maybe I just feel so guilty and I just want my conscience to be quiet. I want to silence it. So I'm going to give a little bit so that it can keep its mouth shut for you know a month or two or maybe a year. But if I believe God's promises... That what he is preparing for me in eternity is infinitely better than anything I could ever have here on earth. Then it becomes so much easier to take a loss, so to speak, here in this world. It becomes possible to not need to have all the coolest stuff. To not need to experience this or that. Matthew 6, 21, again, Jesus says, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So where your treasure is, he's saying where, what you spend your money on is where your heart is. So if we use this verse as a spiritual magnifying glass, right? Or, or, or you know, like to find where our heart is, all we need to do is we need to just look at our budget, right? We look at where our money goes, and if we take an honest look at our budget, I understand we all need to have food. We all need clothing. We all need, you know, a roof over our heads. I'm not, I'm not talking about that. We all know what our basic necessities are and the non-basic necessities are. And if we look at our budget and if we're honest with ourselves, where's my heart? According to this verse, where is my heart? According to my budget, where is my heart? If I say that I love God and I love people, but I'm not generous, whether it be with my money or time or my energy, I'm just lying to myself. I'm just lying to myself. You see, we are called to give in light of glory, in light of the promises that God is preparing for us. And church, I just want to urge you, do not try to be generous without laying hold of the promises of God. Don't do it. Because even when Jesus starts telling us about heaven, right? He starts saying heaven. He doesn't just say do it because it's the better thing to do. 
He gives us a reason why heaven is a better investment, why it's better to have treasures in heaven. He tells us about how much better heaven is. Look what he says. He says, where no moth or rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. He's saying, like, if he came to us today and he was speaking to us this sermon, you know what words he would say? He said, invest into heaven because in heaven, inflation won't eat your money away, right? There are no stock market crashes, right? There's none of those things. Your money is safer in heaven. It's better in heaven. It will be multiplied better there than here on earth. He's actually arguing, he's telling us it's a better deal to invest into heaven. If we just try to give out of guilt, right? You're listening to this message and you're just like, okay, I got to give more. Okay, I get you. Without understanding the treasure that God is preparing for us, we're going to have a very, very hard time being generous. Just, I'm telling you already ahead of time. You're going to have a very difficult time letting go and being generous without having a strong grasp of what God is preparing for us. It's going to feel like a bad deal. It's going to feel like you're getting ripped off, right? Like you're getting manipulated. And we will find every excuse not to give. Believe me, I know, based on my own self, based on my own experiences, it's when I lose sight of God's eternity and glory, when the clouds cover my head and all I see is the earth, it becomes really hard to give, to take a loss. That's why the secret is to lay hold of, by faith, the preciousness of Christ and the home that he said he would go prepare for us. So that's the first point. It's the longest one, too. First point is God calls us to give in light of glory. The second point we see here as well, if we can go to the next slide, it says, on the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper so that there will be no collecting when I come. The second way we're called to give is to give consistently. And it's, I love this because the Bible is very practical and the Bible teaches us, right? Paul encourages Corinthians to set money aside each week, meaning That generosity should not just be random and spontaneous acts. It should be. That's good to be generous spontaneously. But the Bible also teaches us that we should be consistent in our generosity. And there's a few reasons that I can think of, at least, why this is a very good idea. And by the way, just for historical context, most people back in the day, they got paid every single day. At the end of the day, they got paid and they used whatever, whatever they made. Like, they weren't just living paycheck to paycheck. They were living, they, they were living paycheck to paycheck every single day. They were paid every single day, and Paul says, set money aside consistently each week. I don't think the magic number is, you know, every week. I think the point is it's give consistently, right? Be generous consistently. And a few reasons of why this is so good for us, first of all, is it changes us. When we give consistently, right? On a consistent basis. It's a good reminder for us. It's something we do. And in a sense, don't take this out of context, but in a sense, we are 
what we do, right? We are the habits that we have, right? Because the things that we do on a consistent basis, they shape us and the way we see ourselves and our identity. And if we're constantly giving and we're thinking about it, like we're giving to the Lord, right, consistently, that changes us. This, this is who I am. I give. I'm generous, right? I mean, just think about it. What would shape you more if you're giving consistently each week or each month or just randomly a couple of times a year, just kind of as a passing thought. Oh, oh, give and that's it, right? Of course, it's something that you do intentionally and consistently. That would shape us more. B, giving consistently, we end up giving more. And I'm convinced of this because Proverbs 30, 13, 11 says, Wealth gained hastily will dwindle, but whoever gathers little by little will increase it. Now, Proverbs is talking about gaining wealth, Right? But the same is also applicable for giving wealth. Or you could say the other way, gaining wealth in heaven, right? It's giving little by little, little by little, just constantly, little by little. I'm convinced that those who give consistently end up giving more to the kingdom of God than those that give only spontaneously. Again, we should give spontaneously and consistently. It's like saving for retirement, right? You don't save for retirement in one lump sum, just one day. You know, you turn 45, you're like, oh, well, I'm going to save for retirement. Boom. And that's it, right? You've saved for retirement. No, it's little by little, little by little, you're preparing for the future. It's just like people who read their Bibles, right? Those who are deep in God's word are not those that read rarely, spontaneously, but for long periods of time. No, it's those who read consistently, those who are in the Word daily. It's those who know the Word through and through, right? And I think the enemy actually loves to use this idea of like, oh, uh, you know, I'll read later. Uh, I don't have enough time. I'm going to read tomorrow. I'll read double tomorrow, right? Who here has told themselves that before, right? I'll read double tomorrow, right? And then when tomorrow comes, do we actually read double? No, right? We, we know, and the devil knows that's true. And he says, just tomorrow. You're going to give tomorrow. Like, you don't have that much right now. Just give tomorrow. Read tomorrow. Don't worry. Satan loves the word tomorrow, right? But it's a lie. And see, Giving consistently makes giving easier. In fact, we see this logic here in Scripture. He says, put something aside. Why? So that there will be no collecting when I come. He knew that it would be difficult to come to this church and say, all right, guys, fork out this like lump sum, right? It's like, oh, uh, I don't know if I have that, right? He knew it would be easier if they just set some aside little by little, little by little. So there's no collecting. I don't need to like, like urge you guys or not just say, hey, Where's the collections for the saints of Jerusalem? And you would have it ready, right? It makes it easier on us, setting aside consistently so we don't have to scramble when the opportunity to give comes up. And maybe this is the reason why some of us aren't able to meet the needs that, we, that come up in our lives is because we're not setting money aside consistently. And so a need comes up, but because I didn't do what the Bible told me to do, to set aside consistently, I don't have nothing to serve this person with now. And you know, banks have caught on this principle as well, right? They, they, like, they started offering loans 
for literally everything. I'm sure you guys noticed this. I was on Amazon looking at cat food, you know, and you can now buy the $30 cat food for six, you know, six payments of $5 monthly. It's like ridiculous, right? But the banks know that, that if, if you break it up into small chunks, it's going to be easier for people. They're just stealing God's principles. So the word of God calls us to give in light of glory, First point. The second point calls us to give consistently. And now we turn to our third point, and that is the Word of God also calls us to give cheerfully. Paul, he ended up writing another letter to the Corinthians. And again, he starts talking about giving. And in his next letter, he says in 9 7, he says, Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly nor under compulsion, meaning not being forced, for God loves a cheerful giver. And now if you're listening to this message up until this point, and you're thinking, ah, Peter, you're just trying to force me. You're just trying to twist my hand, and I'm about to cave, right? You're just trying to guilt trip me into giving. I just want to tell you that is, that is as far away from the truth as possible. What we see here in 2 Corinthians 9 is that God does not want someone to give unless they are giving cheerfully. Cheerfully. This is a very important clause. Why? Because ultimately, God wants our hearts. Right? At the end of the day, God wants our hearts You think God doesn't have enough money in this world to do all the things that he needs to do to meet all the needs that he needs to meet? He does. He absolutely does, I guarantee you. He says, everything is mine. God has unlimited money. He'll be just fine without our money, but that does not turn into an excuse to not be generous. What he wants, first and foremost, is our hearts. And You see, the heart of the gospel, the heart of Christianity is people being in relationship with God, right? In the garden, we sinned. We broke God's trust. We opposed him. That relationship was broken. Man hid from God, from the garden. And ever since our whole life, we've been hiding. We've been away from him. The relationship has been broken, and we couldn't fix it on ourselves. And God says, here's the law. And we still, we couldn't use God's good law to reach God because we were broken and our relationship was broken. And so God sends his son, Jesus Christ, who fulfills all righteousness on our behalf and restores us in relationship back with God. That's what faith is, right? Faith is that connection between me and God. Think about it. No relation, you cannot have a good relationship without trust, right? There's no such thing. You can't, you know, be best friends with someone unless you trust them, actually, that they're telling you the truth, right? And it's the same thing with us and God. There can be no relationship with us and God without trust. Or the other word that we use is the word faith. God wants our hearts. And he knows that if he has our hearts, we will Give And I love the fact that God put this verse into his word for us is because it acts as a counterbalance, right? If this verse wasn't there, 
There would be so much guilt tripping. There would be so much more manipulation by people who just want money, right? Give, 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 right? But God says, I don't want you to give out of guilt. I want you to give, but I want you to give cheerfully. That's a very important clause. He's saying, and you see, church, if we give, if you listen to this message and you say, I want to give, but you're giving out of guilt, reluctantly, under compulsion, being forced, then we've missed the whole point of giving. We've missed the whole heart of the gospel and of generosity. In fact, God's word says, 1 Corinthians 13, it says, if I give away all I have and I deliver my body to be burned. Think about it. That's the ultimate act of generosity. Not just giving up your stuff, but your own body, right? Our most precious possession. But have not love, I gain nothing. We've missed the whole point. If we give out of guilt, if we give out of compulsion, it's easy to just write a check and say, leave me alone. But being cheerful while giving, that's the secret sauce, church. That's the secret. That's the key, right? And, and why? Because it goes back to the first point of giving in light of glory. If we don't believe the promises of God, if we don't have that faith and what God is preparing for us, even if we give, it will not be cheerful. So the secret is to lay hold of the promises that God gives us by faith. Please do not give out of guilt. Focus on God. Ask God to transform your heart. Plead with him and have Ask him to help you to lay hold of what he is promising. Ask him to open your spiritual eyes. Church, this is an active activity that must be done. In fact, we see Paul prays for the Ephesians. He says, I'm praying for you so that you, having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Pray for God to open your eyes. God, open my eyes. They're closed right now. I don't see heaven. I don't see glory. All I see is this earth, and I don't want to give. Just be honest with him. Tell him, have that conversation with God. And when he opens your eyes, give and you will give cheerfully. So we're called to give in light of glory. We're called to give consistently. And we're called to give cheerfully. And lastly, we're called to give generously. Another principle that we find here in 2 Corinthians, the verse right before the one we just read. 2 Corinthians 9, 6 says, Whoever sows sparingly will reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will reap bountifully. In fact, this principle... Of, of reaping what we sow or reaping how much we sow is so ingrained into the basic principles of this world that there are unbelievers who are writing books and giving seminars about all this concept. Proverbs eleven twenty four says, One gives freely, yet grows all the richer. Another withholds what he should give and only experiences lack. You see, when farming, if you drop just a couple of seeds, you will have only a couple of crops. But if you drop many, 
you will have many, much crops. God has so designed this world that the more we give, the more we will receive. Being stingy ultimately robs the stingy person. Just like Proverbs 11 says. And here, church, here's the reality. We can never outgive God. We can't. Matthew 19, 29, Jesus promises, he says, and everyone who who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold. Not 10% more. Not 100% more. A hundredfold. A hundred times more. And will inherit eternal life. You see, what God is preparing for us in glory is so much better than anything we could ever give here on earth. I remember when I was in elementary school, we had these things called duck bucks, right? And we could use duck bucks to go and buy stuff, right, in, in the little student store. And I remember when I graduated from elementary school after sixth grade, and I was cleaning out my room a couple of months later, and I pull out a box, and I open it up, and there were some duck bucks in there, Right? And this very, like, curious feeling came over me because before, uh, you could, I could use these duck bucks, you know, to buy some chips or whatever my parents didn't get me, right? Or a little bouncy ball or a pencil or a pen bookmark. But now, looking at these duck bucks, it was very curious because they were useless to me now. Something that used to be so valuable, not so valuable, but valuable, was now just just a piece of paper, literally a piece of paper that could bring me no more value anymore. Now imagine if someone comes to you as a kid, as you're in elementary school, and says, hey, give me your duck bucks, and I will put real money into a bank account reserved for you. You can't touch it till you're 18, but it will grow. It will be invested. You see, when you're in school, that bank account and somewhere there, you've never seen it, you never know what it is, you never have any access to it, that real money, is, it's not going to feel very real, is it? It's not going to feel very real when you're standing and you see all these other kids lining up into line and using their duck bucks to buy all those Cheetos and cup noodles and all those snacks that you really want, and you're not getting any of those snacks because you made a deal to give away your duck bucks. It's, the, 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 the duck bucks are going to feel real, aren't they? And you do it just based on trust. You trust this person. And now imagine, imagine if this person promised you for every one duck buck you give me, I'm going to give you a hundred. I'm going to put a hundred into the bank account. And it's going to grow with investment. I know it sounds unreal, but you realize that the deal that God is promising to every single one of us is even better then this is school example. It's even greater. You think God is going to stop at a hundredfold? He's not. He just said a hundredfold because that was a pretty big number for them. It's going to be so much more because it's going to be all of eternity. He is going to pour out the riches of his grace towards us for all of eternity. And that's what our Heavenly Father is promising us. I want to share a story of a, of a pastor. Forty years ago, him and his wife, they started giving 10%. And next year, they gave 11%. And 
And then the year after that, they gave 12%. And even when times were tough, they would still raise their giving just by a little bit, right? Why did he do it? Well, he said because he wanted his heart to grow. Every year, he wanted to be more like Jesus. And nobody knew this for 25 years. They just kept raising their giving. Eventually, their 12% turned into 50%, and then they were giving 60%, and then they were giving 70%. Right now, they are giving 91% of their income, and they're living on 9%. And he was testifying before the Senate, and after that, a senator pulls him aside and says, hey, I know you sold your book that you wrote. It sold millions and millions of copies. Why do you think God chose you to write this best-selling book? And I'll read you his words. He said, I know why. Because God knew that he could trust me with the money. God knew that I would not spend it on my stuff. I wouldn't go buy a bigger house. I wouldn't go buy a bigger car. I wear a watch from Walmart. I drive a 15-year-old Ford truck. God knew that I wouldn't spend the money on myself, but that I would use it to help other people. And he continues. He says, now I know what a lot of people say. Well, if I wrote a bestseller, I'd give away millions too. You know what he says? No, you wouldn't. I guarantee you that you wouldn't. Why? Because you're not being generous right now. I was generous when we were out of work. I was generous when we had no money. I was generous when the cupboard was bare. And I was generous when my wife was holding the job and I was in school. I had a 40-year track record of being generous. And God knew that he could trust me. Church, I'm not preaching a prosperity gospel here. The Bible does not present God to us as a genie to get rich here on earth. God might make you rich on earth. He does that to some people. Awesome. Praise God. Be faithful over that. But what I want to ask is, if your motivation to give here on earth is to get rich here on earth, don't do it. Just, just believe me, worst investment possible. It's not going to work. If that's your real motivation, oh, I want God to make me rich. Oh, I want God to give me a bigger house. God won't bless that. But if you truly seek to please God and to obtain true riches in heaven, you will never outgive God, I promise you. So we're called to give in light of glory. We're called to give consistently. We're called to give cheerfully. And we're called to give generously. And lastly, but not leastly, I can't end this sermon on giving without in mentioning this very important point. In Acts 20, 35, it says it's more blessed to give than to receive. Jesus actually said that. It's his words. Not only can we not outgive God, but that there's actually a greater blessing in giving than in receiving. See, this, this message is called How to Be Blessed. I'm giving you the secret to being blessed. The word blessed is a simple word if you actually think about it. It just means happy. It just means prosperous, fortunate, right? And Romans 1.25 says that God is blessed forever. God is blessed forever, meaning God is infinitely happy. God is happy to an infinite degree. And you know one reason why God is infinitely happy? 
Because God is the ultimate giver. God is the ultimate giver. He's given more than everyone else. As I call the band up, Job 41.11 says, who, who first given me, who has first given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. You see, if we were to try to spend even the rest of eternity, if we made a deal and said, okay, we're going to repay God, and we were trying to spend the rest of eternity trying to repay God, Every single second of our existence would, in, in our effort to try to repay him, would only put us into further and further debt to him. Because he is the creator. He gives to all of us existence and life and breath and joy and everything good. But even greater than the act of creation, God did something far more unthinkable. God has given up his only son. This is the heart of the gospel. God gave up the one who mattered to him most. The only one that mattered to him. God made a very real sacrifice. It wasn't like, oh, Jesus, go on this little journey. I'll see you back in 33 years. No, that was a very real sacrifice. It was the greatest sacrifice ever. We will never, none of our sacrifices will ever even come close to the sacrifice that the infinite, almighty, holy God had made by giving up Jesus Christ. God had empty pockets when he gave up Jesus. God was, you could say, bankrupt. Everything else he could just speak into creation, not his son. And he did all that so that we could be forgiven, church. So that we could come to God. Jesus purchased us by suffering for our sins on the cross. And friend, if you haven't accepted the free and precious gift of God yet, come to him. God is calling you right now. Come. This is your chance. No matter where you've been, no matter what you've done, the whole point of the gospel is it's a free gift right now and you can come to him, come to God and live for him. Don't wait, don't linger. And for those of us that have already come to Christ, that have accepted the precious gift, the most precious of all, God calls us to give. And you see, when we give, we will be more blessed than when we just receive, receive, receive our entire life. In a small way, when we give, we begin to reflect God and his glory by giving. We become partners, you could argue. We become partners with God in the gospel, right? Every act of sacrifice and generosity done for the sake of Christ is a little gospel, you could say. It's a little imitation of what God did through Christ on the cross for us. So when we give, it's not just like giving away money. No, we're imitating God. We're, we're pointing back to God, and he gets all the glory, we get all the joy. May God bless us and be with us. Let's stand to pray. And right now, I'm going to give you just a few minutes, a minute of response time. But I want us to think about 
giving in light of glory, about giving consistently, giving cheerfully, giving generously, and to mirror him and to be blessed like him in all of our giving. Let's pray. Lord, we worship you for making that great sacrifice for us. Lord Jesus, thank you. Help us see you, Lord, and be in awe of you. And help us be a people that are marked by their generosity, their selflessness. Those who have such a strong grasp of the better possession that you are preparing for us, that people would stop and look and think, there's something different here. Lord, use us. Bless us through that. And I pray that in everything we would give cheerfully. Lord Jesus, we thank you. We worship you. We pray this all in your precious, precious name. Amen.